Well, good morning once again, dear saints. We return to a text that we have considered in a sermon sermon uh, previous weeks ago, some weeks ago. Last week, we revisited our study of Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3, wherein the Lord holds back the four winds of devastation. They are the four horsemen until all the elect have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We revisited that particular text because I felt uh, through different conversations that I had with some of the saints throughout the church that there was uh, still some uh, confusion concerning that particular text. There were still questions concerning the, the meaning of the sealing and significance of the seal. I do believe, based upon the conversations that I had last week, that God in his mercy has provided some clarity on that particular subject of the seal of God. Praise be to God for that. This week then, we return to yet another text, and hopefully lack of clarity does not become my pattern, in order to, God willing, clarify once again the mysterious number of the 144,000. Like the sermon concerning the seal, there were, also, there were also questions concerning this 144,000 that I don't think were sufficiently answered in my previous sermon. So, therefore, we are returning to the particular text. And, Lord willing, with God's help, by God's grace, we are given another chance uh, to, with God's help, bring clarity, hopefully, to this text. Uh, what is the meaning of this mysterious and, as I said before, admittedly, highly debated number, 144,000. How are we to understand the meaning of the 12 tribes that are presented to us? I think it's an important question that we should ask this. And why does this even matter? Why do I even need to know the, uh, the identity of the 144,000? Does it even matter? What benefit will this provide for my soul? I think in the end, Lord willing, we'll be able to see the answer to all of these questions and know them. Let's begin. We will have four points this morning, and with God's help, he will help us to have clarity, I pray. Number one, the context. Context is always important. The context. Verse four, we, or I heard, if you're taking notes, take note of the word heard. That's very important. I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. This hearing of this number comes on the heels, as was already stated, of God holding back the four winds of devastation. God is holding back judgment. He's holding it back from the four corners of the world, that is, north, uh, south, east, and west. Whenever we think of four, we, we need to think about it in terms of north, east, west, and south, right? God is holding back the four winds of devastation. And as he is holding back judgment, he's uh, waiting patiently for all of those who are his to be sealed in the Holy Spirit, uh, to be given the, the seal on their forehead, the the uh, symbolic seal on their forehead, not not fit, not literal, but figurative seal on their forehead, 
of the Holy Spirit. We learned last week, as I have already stated, that the seal is the promised Holy Spirit, who seals, who also marks, same thing, or indwells, same thing, his elect ones when they win, when they hear the gospel and believe. When you hear and believe, you are sealed. When you hear and believe, you are marked. There is not a second work of grace, third work of grace. There is only one work of grace when you hear and believe. You are then filled with His Spirit. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit, if you will. You will remember that this sealing is an end-time prophetic event that was foretold by Joel and identified by Peter at Pentecost as being now in effect. Uh, Peter looks at the crowd and says, that which Joel spoke about, that which Joel foretold is happening now. In Revelation, John sees Joel's prophecy. Peter's recognition of it as an ongoing end-time work of the Spirit until Christ returns. I will, God says through Joel, God says through Peter, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. It is an ongoing end-time work of the Spirit until Christ returns. This pouring out is an ongoing, I need to say that again, work of the Spirit until Christ returns. What is the work? It's a sealing. It's marking the elect with the promised Holy Spirit. Uh, Christ has says, I will give you another helper. Uh, he says to the disciples, don't leave until you receive the promise from the, whole, from the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. The Lord then gives John. Now, I think we should take this into consideration now, and not let it go past our eyes when we're reading. The Lord gives John a priceless gift. Now think about it in context again. The Lord is holding back judgment. As he's holding back judgment, he's saying, uh, the world will be preserved until all of my sealed ones have been sealed. So I will hold back, God says. I will hold back devastation until then. But all of my sealed ones must be sealed. And then John is allowed by the Lord to hear something magnificent. John says... And then I hear this, the, I hear a number. Don't let that go past your eyes. The, the, the context, the Lord's holding back because he wants to make sure and ensure that all of his people are sealed. Then John hears the number of how many will be sealed. John is allowed to hear the number. And brothers and sisters, you are now allowed to hear the number as well. You are allowed to hear the number of all of those whom God has, is, and will seal. Now, in the midst of utter devastation coming from the Lord in final judgment, God judges and will judge holy men for trample or unholy men for trampling under over his righteous law. But just before the punishment of the wicked. He ensures that his number is sealed. That they will not perish. God will not fail to save all of his people. And he will not leave one behind. That's good news for us. He will not fail to save one. He, he will even hold back 
the winds of devastation. And you can imagine the four horsemen are, are uh, looking forward to riding and completely devastating the world. They are doing so in judgment. They are doing so, as we spoke about before, to refine our faith. But they are looking forward to utter devastation. But God says, not yet. Not until all of my sealed ones have been sealed. And God without need. God without compulsion. No one is forcing God to do this. No one, no one is compelling God to do this. There is no one good on earth that God is saying, he's very good or she's very good. I, I, I need to make sure that at least because of how good or he or she is, I save them before the world is destroyed. Not in the least. There is no need nor compulsion from God. And yet he decrees to, to ransom a particular people for his own praise and for his own glory. The earth, the sea, the trees, they will all be preserved. Which means this, humanity gets to continue to live. Humanity gets to continue to enjoy creation. Even the unsaved ones, they get to enjoy God's creation. They get to marry and be given in marriage. They get to carry on their work and to pursue worldly pursuits. They get to make money and enjoy all of what God has to offer here in this creation, but only for this life. While God, as they are pursuing their worldly pursuits, while God, through the proclamation of the gospel by faithful witnesses, is drawing his own to himself. So that, through hearing and believing, they will be sealed and marked as his own before it's all over. Then God allows John to hear the grand total. The grand total is 144,000 sealed from all the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. John may have wondered, who will be saved? John may have also wondered, how many will be saved? Those, those, are, those are common questions, aren't they? Think about this. God, who are you going to save? Don't we look at, about at our families and say, who are you going to save here? And, and don't we also wonder, God, how many will be saved? I can remember when we first embraced the doctrines of grace, one of the objections that commonly was brought up uh, during that time was, who, the question of who and how many, who and how many of God's elect? Common objections that were raised uh, specifically to me, were you were saying that we should no longer evangelize because no one is going to be saved except for the elect. Well, how many are there, they would say. They would ask me that question. And then they would also say as an objection, and that means that my brother, who is not a believer, is not, a, not elect, and they won't be saved. That's the who. So the, the one, on the one hand, is saying, how many? Because you're saying it's only the elect. And then on the other, they're saying, well, what about my brother? They're not a believer. Does that mean they're not elect? See, there's the who. There's the, the how many and the who. It's very common. Wrongly understood, but I think still important matters. It's very natural for us to wonder who exactly will be saved. How many will be saved? Is there a, a specific number that will be saved? 
And interestingly enough, God answers those mysterious questions for us. Jesus, uh, in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 5, the Lord says, Now, Father, listen closely, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Listen to what he says. I have manifested your name to men who you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Christ in his high priestly prayer, and and there's an ongoing theme actually in that prayer. It is those whom the Father has given and those whom the, the Son has not failed to save. Well, what is that? It's a specific number. It is a specific people. Strong implication that there is a specific people and a specific number who will be saved. Can you know who will be saved? In a certain sense, yes. In a certain sense, no. But in a certain sense, yeah, you can. John chapter 3 Nicodemus was an inquisitive Pharisee. He comes to the Lord Jesus under the cover of night. And our Lord answers, listen to this, all of his unasked questions. The Lord answers all of his unasked questions. For example, the Lord says to Nicodemus, when Nicodemus didn't even ask, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus never asked, how can someone see the kingdom of God? He comes to the Lord and says, I know that what you're doing has got to be from God because only God can do these things. And the Lord says, I know what you really want to know. No one can enter the kingdom unless they're born again. And Nicodemus is is amazed at the response. His response is, how? How is someone born again? Now, Now, Nicodemus is thinking about it. You're on this side of eternity. You've heard the word born again all your life, right? Nicodemus has never heard, for example, this phrase, born again. So if you've never heard the phrase born again, what would you most naturally be thinking? Well, physically, how how do I get born again? You mean go back into my mother's womb and, and start all over again? Is that the only way that someone enters the kingdom of God is, is going back in, starting all over again and trying better? He's only thinking about it from a physical standpoint. He says, how can a man be born again when he's old? He cannot enter into his mother's womb a second time, can he? Right? And the Lord corrects Nicodemus's misunderstanding. Because Nicodemus is not seeing with spiritual eyes. He's not understanding with spiritual mind. He's only seeing things from a physical standpoint. And Christ corrects him. I'm not talking about being born physically. I'm talking about being born spiritually. The, the, the soul... Uh, The soul animates your body, your mind, your will, your desires. They are all expressed through the flesh. And so Christ is saying, in order for your flesh to be renewed, your spirit needs to be renewed. You need to be born again. Nicodemus still can't understand how this is possible. And the Lord then rebukes him. You're the teacher of Israel. You don't know these things. You're not able to understand spiritual concepts. You should know this. Uh, so the author of Scripture gives the teacher of Israel 
a lesson on the scope of Scripture. Him, his very self. Now hang with me. Christ, what does he do? In, in, order, to, in order to get Nicodemus's eyes off of physical things, Christ takes him back to the Scriptures. Okay, you want to know how to be born again. Let's go to the Scriptures. Remember, it's almost as if Christ is saying to, to Nicodemus, remember Numbers chapter 21? Remember when the venomous snakes had bitten the children of Israel because of their sin? And Nicodemus, you can almost kind of see him saying, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. What did the Lord, Christ is almost saying to him, what did the Lord command the children of Israel to do in order to be cured of their, their venomous bites? What, what did the Lord command them to do? Well, Nicodemus might have said, well, the Lord commanded Moses to construct a bronze snake and, and commanded Moses to tell the children of Israel that if they looked upon that bronze snake, that they would be healed of their, of their venomous disease. And it's almost as if the Lord goes, exactly. Exactly. And then he says to him in John chapter 3 and verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, listen to this, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now, see what he did? He answered two questions in one. The Lord has answered both the how and the who of salvation. Uh, How is one saved? How is one born again? By looking to Christ. By not seeking to find a cure for their sin in anywhere other than Christ. For looking to Christ who heals all of their infirmities. And by his stripes we are healed. And then Christ also answers the who. He answers the how. Look to Christ. And then he answers the who. Well, can we know who will be saved? For the sake of our context, can I know who will be saved? And the answer is, again, yes in a certain sense. You will not know in the sense that you can know before they're saved. That knowledge belongs to the Lord. But you can know in the sense that you will know after they're saved. Do you know who is saved? Well, the Lord answers that, doesn't he? In Genesis chapter, in, sorry, John chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, again, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's the who. Who will be saved? Whoever believes in him, Christ, will have eternal life. John three sixteen. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Who? Whoever believes in him. John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not judged. So regarding the question of who will be saved, who will be sealed, who are the elect, they are those who believe. Can you know those who are saved? Can you know who is saved? Yes. If you believe in Christ, you can know that they are saved. Doesn't mean that someone, what if they don't believe now? It doesn't mean they won't believe later. It also doesn't mean that they will believe later. It means that if they believe, they will be saved. If they believe, they will be saved. Here is how you can know. God knows who his elect ones are, and you will know when they believe. The Lord says to Israel, concerning the the who, the Lord appeared to him, uh, Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord appeared to him long ago saying, I have loved you, listen to to the way, I have loved you, With an everlasting love. Therefore, 
I have drawn you out with kindness. Dear saints of God, the Lord has placed His love upon you. You who believe. And you are able to believe in Him because He has drawn you out with kindness. And the reason why He has drawn you out with His kindness is because He has loved you with a love that never began to begin. It's an everlasting love. He has loved you before you were a zygote in your mother's womb. He has loved you even before then. He has loved you now. And He will love you beyond the grave. Dear saints, He loves you before you existed. He loves you now. And He will love you beyond the grave. Who does God love? Those who believe. Those who believe. Hebrews 7.25 declares that the love of Christ saves us. And it saves us to the uttermost. That means it saves His people forever. This love is a unique love. And it also is a specific love. One that has been personally extended to particular people. And one that cannot be defeated. One that cannot be defeated. The Apostle Paul testified concerning the moment in which we were chosen. Ephesians 1.4 Just as he chose us in him before the foundation, before the foundation of the world, uh, go to Job. And Job will tell you a little bit about that. Job, who had all of his complaints against the Lord. The Lord finally tells Job, stand up sturdy. I'm going to ask you a question. And the question is this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? And here in Ephesians, Paul says, and Christ loved you even before then. Christ loved you even before then. Even before the foundations of the world were laid. The Lord Jesus declares to the Apostle Paul that his love for you has gone before the foundation of the world. We have been predestined by Him in love. There was never a moment that our triune God has not loved you. There has never been a moment when our triune God has not loved you. It's an everlasting love. It's an enduring love. And it is is a personal love. He has personally loved you. It's not a random number that God has extended His love to you. It's not a random people that God has extended His love to. It's not an eeny, meeny, mighty, mo love that God has extended. Rather, it is a personal, it is a direct, and it is a, an eternal, everlasting, enduring love that God has given to His specific people. It is exact. It's personal. It is a specific number. But you're not just a number. You are a person that God has loved eternally. So when we think about this large number that we are going to dig more into, don't just think of it as a rounded out number. Think of it as a number that is personal, that is exact, and that has been everlasting and will endure forever. Secondly, who did God choose? Oh, well, it's not, not, not just yet. Uh, when we get into the who, well, well, who is he choosing? Very quickly, and then we'll get into our second point. Uh, Romans 9 says whoever he wants. Uh, second point. The the significance of the number. The significance of the number. Again, verse 4. And I heard, take note of that word again, the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, I think that we have sufficiently considered the context, right? The, the, The four winds are being held back. 
God is, is preserving the earth so that his people might be sealed. John then hears the number of those who will be sealed. The, the grand total, if you will. Is this number meant to be taken literally or, or is it meant to be taken symbolically? Now, I said to Brother David the other day, I was talking to him. I'm not going to spend time in this sermon to go into all of the false uh, presentations of 144,000. I don't want to give them time for that, right? Here's what it means. Let's get into that. It's important when seeking to try to understand this particular number, the literary style or the literature that you and I are studying, that is the literary style of writing. What kind of book is this? Well, not the the collection of books, not the Bible, but, but the actual book of the Apocalypse of John. What kind of book is it? Well, it's an apocalyptic vision. If you're taking notes, it's an apocalyptic vision. Visions are always meant to be taken or understood, interpreted symbolically. For example, as we began this letter, we saw that the letter was written to seven churches. Well, is the letter only meant to benefit seven churches? No. These seven churches, seven being a complete number or a whole number, the seven churches are meant to represent the church for all time. So even though it's written to seven churches, it is actually symbolic of the church Catholic for all time. There's our first indication. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4 This letter is from he who is and who was and who is to come. And listen to this. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Well, do we believe, brothers and sisters, that there are seven spirits in the triune God? Well, it would not be the triune God if there were seven spirits, would it be? Right? So this number seven, then, is therefore symbolic. Symbolic of what? Seven is the number of completeness. So if there are seven spirits before the throne of God, then seven, we believe, is the fullness of the spirit or the completeness of of the Spirit of God, if you will. Yeah, there's another symbolic number. Revelation chapter 4. There are 24 thrones surrounding the throne of the Almighty God. These 24 are meant to represent the 12 tribes of the Old Testament and the 12 disciples in the New Testament. It is symbolic of God's redemptive work throughout all of redemptive history. Not literal. It's meant to symbolize something. The work of God throughout the prophets of the old and the prophets of the new. That's what it's meant to symbolize. Let's go to just a few more. Hang with me with all these numbers, okay? Don't let your mind start to spin like beautiful mind. Hang in there. There are four living creatures around the throne who go forth to and from God to the four corners of the world. They are doing God's work throughout the world. Then we come to the fifth chapter. We begin to see... The beginnings of the unleashing of the seven seals upon the earth, which are meant to represent God's total judgment and total salvation. Devastation and restoration of all creation. What's the point? Have I bored you with numbers? I hope not. What's the point? The point is, this is just a small portion of symbolic numbers that are found within this apocalyptic book. Therefore, when we come to this 144,000, we must not all of a sudden abandon the symbolic nature of numbers. Does that make sense? 
if all the other numbers prior to this number have been understood symbolically, then why would we then all of a sudden say, but this number is not symbolic, it's actually literal. If everything else before this is symbolic, then this also is symbolic. The rule must still apply. If the rule is the numbers prior are symbolic, then the rule going forward also is the rule that the number is symbolic. With that principle established, we must then seek to understand the significance of the 144,000. What is, what is it meant to symbolize? If it's symbolic, what does it symbolize? Again, not divorcing the number from the context, because that's important. Revelation 7, 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. And then John hears the number. John hears the number. From the inaugurating of the kingdom of Christ to the consummation, God has, God is, and God will seal 144,000 with his spirit. He will protect them, preserve them, and ensure that none of them are lost. What does it symbolize? You'll notice that John hears that these elect ones are from the tribes of the sons of Israel. Out of, he would say. More about this in a moment. But John hears the names of the heads of these tribes, and they are representative names. Twelve names from each of the twelve tribes. And there are 12,000 from or out of the 12 tribes that are sealed by God. 12 names. Out of those 12 names, there are 12,000. This is what John hears. Judah, 12,000 sealed. Reuben, 12,000 sealed. So on and so forth. 12 tribes. From each 12, 12,000 are sealed. It's this. 12 times 12 times 10. 144,000. 10 is, a, is, is also a number of completeness, but we'll get to what that means more in a moment. Someone might say, I thought 7 was a number of completeness. You're right. It is. So is 12. 12 represents a perfect governmental foundation. 12 represents a perfect governmental foundation. That is... 12 squared or multiplied implies an absolute completeness of this number. It's absolutely perfect. The number that God has sealed is not lacking in any sense. That's the point. The number that God has sealed is not lacking in any point. Well, when God formed Israel, he did so with the formation of how many tribes? Twelve. Were there any lacking in the tribes? No. It was God's complete number. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus called how many to be his disciples? Twelve. And when Judas uh, sinned and betrayed Christ, did they leave the number at eleven? No. In God's wisdom, God leaves the disciples to fill that empty space so that there would still be twelve. Because it is a number of perfect governmental foundation. It's a perfect foundation for governmental authority, stability. Revelation 12 tribes multiplied by the 12 apostles become part of the figurative structure of the heavenly city of God as we move forward. The new Jerusalem is said to be built with 12 gates, which 
are 12 pearls. This is where they get the pearly gate from. And on the written, on these gates are written the names of the 12 tribes. The city also has a wall. Guess how, how, how uh, many feet the, in cubits the wall is? 144 feet. With foundation stones. And guess how many foundation stones there are? Twelve. On which each of those twelve stones, there is written the names of the twelve apostles. Twelve times twelve. So we're hearing this twelve and this 144 over and over and over again. What does it mean? What does it symbolize? Get to the point. Sorry about that. It's the number of the sealed. It is a complete number. It is meant to represent the people of God from all ages. And that number is a complete number. 144,000. What is it meant to symbolize? Let's do it again. It is meant to symbolize the complete number of the people of God. Is it, is it literal? It's symbolic. Meaning it's a perfect number. Will there only be 144,000 people saved? No. It's a symbolic number of the completeness of God's sealed people. It's a number that John hears that God will seal. And therefore, we'll leave this exact number. We'll leave that to the final point. But I think you understand the point. Are you getting it? Right? Not a literal number, symbolic, meant to represent the sealed of God, the redeemed of God, the saved from the ascension of Christ to his anticipated return. God will seal these people. But, but let's go a step further. Would you mind? Let's go a step further. Someone may say, well, that, that's, that's pretty clear. Uh, it's the sealed of God from the time that he uh, has called to the time that he will return. That's good. Do you know that in the Old Testament... <clears throat> There are genealogies that, that, that are similar to the one that we've seen in Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8. Meaning, in the Old Testament, there, is, there are genealogies that are not really genealogies. Meaning, they will say a name, and from that name, there will be a number. It's not a genealogy, it's a census. Whenever you see those, they're not genealogies, they're censuses. Uh, a genealogy, you'll see, in Revelation or Genesis chapter 4 and 5, there's... Genealogy. And in that genealogy, there'll be Nimrod, and Nimrod will be a mighty hunter. There's Enoch. Enoch walked with God. But, but, but what that's doing is it's progressing the story, right? When we see Genesis chapter 4 and the genealogy, and then Genesis chapter 5 and the genealogy, those are just progressing the story of redemption. But when we see things like we see in Revelation chapter 4, 7, 4 through 8, those are what is called a census. Now, why are why are there why are censuses? I don't know if that's the right word. Why why are they taken in the Old Testament? Why, why would there be from the tribe and then there would be a number by those tribes? It would be for this reason: to determine military might in preparation for war. Anytime there is a census taken with numbers next to those names, it is, as far as I've seen, 
always in preparation for war. For example, in Numbers chapter 1, verse 3, a census was taken in preparation for war in which the word actually is explicitly stated in verse 20, in preparation for war. In First Chronicles chapter 27 and verse 23, another census was taken in preparation for yet another war. In Second Samuel, some of you may be familiar with this one, David sinfully and pridefully takes a census. He later repents for his taking of a census. But why? It was because he was boasting about his own military might and power. What's the point? And why does that connect to Revelation? Here in Revelation, we see that there is a number. It is heard. There are numbers counted from each tribe. If we're following the pattern of the Old Testament, the naming of the tribes and the counting of their numbers are preparation for war. That is, this sentence... And all who have been drafted from these particular tribes, they are drafted into holy war. In time, holy war. Some of you may all automatically be thinking about Left Behind series, some kind of battle in Megiddo. Not that. Uh, don't let your, uh, that kind of timetable of John Hagee go into your mind. That's false. That's not what we're talking about. But you know this verse, don't you? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. You know that verse. In Revelation chapter 12, 13 and 17, we see there is a great war taking place. It is the end time war. One that is taking place right now as Satan is attempting to overthrow the church. You are involved in holy war. Satan is making war against God and his saints. And you are called to stand. You are called to stand. In Revelation 14, a beautiful picture, which we'll get to um, in a couple of years. Revelation chapter 14, 144,000 are standing. They are standing with the Lamb. They have his name upon their forehead, symbolically. And they are standing in victory. They have not given themselves over to the harlot. They stand with Christ and they conquer in his name in the same way that Christ conquered. How did Christ conquer? Not with the sword, not with the spear, but like David to Goliath. In the name of the Lord. Faith. In the name of the Lord of hosts. 144,000 is the church. Here it is. Ready? What's the symbolic meaning? 144,000 is the church who conquer through holy war by maintaining their faith through suffering and holding fast to Christ, remaining faithful even unto death. And they are able to do so because they are sealed by God. That's the meaning. Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, the nation. The army is presented. Here are God's soldiers. And I'm looking at them this morning. You and I. Revelation 7, 14, we are told how they fight by washing their robes with, or washing their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3, for 
though we walk or live in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction or the bringing down of strongholds, of fortresses. We destroy every speculation, every lofty thought that raises against the knowledge of God. And we take every captive thought to the obedience of Christ. Saints, you are in a war. A holy war. And it is an end time war. But the gates of hell will not prevail. This list is meant to represent the church. Stands and fights with Christ in holy war. Spiritual war. Against spiritual darkness until Christ returns. And defeats all of his enemies and all of our enemies once and for all. Thirdly. The significance of the names in relation or revelation chapter seven. What, what is the significance of the names? This is verses four through eight, all the names. I'm not going to read them again. It's important for you to know that this list does not fit any other list that we see in the old Testament. When we see these, these from the tribes of, from the tribes of this list and pretty much all the other lists, none of them are identical. So when we see revelation and we go, oh, that's a list from the old Testament. Not really. There are similar names, but none of them are exactly the same. For example, Joseph is included in this list. Joseph is included in no other list prior to this. Joseph is always replaced by his sons, but not here. The point at the outset is simple. I'm going to give it to you before we get to the end so that you won't wait for it in anticipation at the edge of your seat. Here it is. It's list to communicate this. There is no longer any distinction. Not for Jew, not for Gentile, not for slave, and not for free. Here's the point. Don't miss it. What's the point of this list? That if you are in Christ, we are one in Christ. If you are in Christ, we are now one in Christ. That's the point. Now let's get to the intricacies of that point. The details of the point. They are found symbolically. But the point I hope you've found in this list is that we are one in Christ. Now, let's get to the, to the details. In all of these, there is no list the same. We know that. The tribe of Dan, which is in list before, is removed. What's the significance of this? In all of the other lists, Judah is never first. And now here in Revelation, Judah is first. Why? It's a symbolic way of saying the people of God fall under the authority of the Lion of Judah as we see in chapter 5. Genesis chapter 49 predicts the coming leader of Judah who will bring about the obedience of the peoples or the obedience of the nations. He is the expectation of the nations. This is what Jacob prophesied about his son Judah, that, that one coming from you will bring about the obedience of the nations. And he is also the expectation of the nations. Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5 by referring to the obedience of faith among the nations which has been accomplished by Christ, fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, Judah is mentioned first because through Judah, the king emerges and he becomes the door of blessing to the nations. The list declares that God's people are sealed from all nations. Consider this. David uh, who is 
most known as being a prominent king from Judah, he would be the perfect choice for entry into the nations for the blessing of Israel or blessing of Abraham. Do you know that David was not a pure ethnic Jew? Do you know who his relative was? He's got a few that are uh, interesting. He's the relative of Ruth. Do you know who Ruth was? Ruth was known as the Moabitess. Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth was not an Israelite. But she is grafted in to the people of God through her kinsman redeemer. And David becomes king, but he is also her descendant. He's half Gentile, if you will. And so it's wonderful to hear that there is no, no distinction. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. The true people of God are those who place their faith in Christ. But ethnic Jews are not excluded either because next comes Reuben. Born of Leah. Then the tribe of Dan and Ephraim. But they're removed because the two tribes, they committed adultery. And there is no place for idolaters in the kingdom of God. They're removed. Then we have Gad and Asher and Naphtali in their place. Which is interesting is that all of these tribes of these men that we just mentioned, that is of uh, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, they were born to slave women. They were the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, who also were not ethnic Jews. And yet here they are included in this list of those who make up the army of God, who stand with the Lamb. These women and their children will be considered outsiders of the covenant community. And yet, here they are, insiders in the covenant community in the final day. They are right alongside the children, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. It is a mix of Jew-Gentile, because in Christ there is no such thing. In Christ there is no such thing. So that when you hear people who are supposed to be of the church teaching things like critical race theory, completely embracing critical race theory, embracing things like, listen, whether it be black lives matter, white lives matter, brown lives, any of those, reject those because the scriptures are teaching the opposite, the absolute opposite. That what matters is all of those who are in Christ. And we are one. And we are one. What is a Jew? A Jew is one not from Israel. A Jew is one who is considered to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. One who has share in the Abrahamic covenant. Descendants of Abraham, yes. But more than anything, those who receive the benefits of Abraham. Share in the blessings of Abraham. Well, what are the blessings of Abraham? They're threefold. Land, becoming a great nation, and being a blessing to the nations. Land, 
becoming a great nation, being a part of that great nation, and that nation being a blessing to the nations. That's the blessing of Abraham. But there are physical blessings of Abraham, and there are spiritual blessings of Abraham. It's a two-sided coin for the blessings of Abraham. His physical children would be entitled to the land that God gave Abraham. They would be marked through circumcision as belonging to the great nation. They would be chosen to be a blessing to the nations. Israel has a great benefit. God gives to them. They are to give to the nations. But there's a spiritual aspect to this as well. It's the other side of the coin. The Lord promises Abraham, through your seed, the nations will be blessed. What is that? The seed of Abraham that blessed the nations is a seed that God promised in Genesis would crush the head of the serpent. The seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the promised seed of Abraham who will bless the nations. Christ is the promised seed of Abraham, the seed who will crush the head of the serpent, who draws to himself a nation, every tribe and every tongue, a people for his own possession, called by his name, sealed in and by his spirit. The physical covenantal blessings were not afforded to the children of slave concubines or secondary women. They weren't entitled to these blessings. They weren't benefactors of the covenant. And yet here in this supposedly strictly Jewish list, there are people who would not legally be considered benefactors of the covenantal blessings. And yet, here they are. Jew and Gentile, mixed together, receiving blessings from Abraham. I think you're getting the point. There is no distinction. We are all one in Christ. A Jew is not one outwardly, but one inwardly. One could convert to Judaism. They could start to adhere to all of the laws of Judaism and then call themselves, therefore, a Jew. But the Lord Jesus said, a Jew is not one who is just one outwardly, but one inwardly. Through circumcision, not of the flesh, but of the heart. And only God can change the heart. 144,000 is meant to represent the church. It's meant to symbolize the perfect, complete number that God has sealed and those who God will preserve to the very end, no matter what comes. Fourth and finally, hearing and seeing. This is verse 4 once again as we close. As the angel, or as John hears, from the angel that no harm should be done to the earth until all of the elect are sealed. John hears a number, 144,000 from each of these tribes. Interesting though, the hearing is from God's perspective. That is, God knows exactly the amount of those who will be saved. That's God's perspective. And then in verse 9, which we will close with, After these things, what does John do? I looked. And behold, a great multitude which no one could count. From every tribe or from every nation 
and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. In verse 4, John hears something from the perspective of God. And then in verse 9, John sees something from the perspective of man. It's a number that no one can count. It's a number that no one can count. He says, it's a great multitude. It's a great multitude. And in verse 4, there's a number. Well, God is saying, he's hearing God saying, from these tribes, seal. And then John sees the realization those whom God has sealed. And if you can imagine going to the ocean and the sands on the sea actually being people. That will be the scene in heaven at the consummation of all things. If you can imagine, I grew up in Fairfax, the, uh, the darker part of Bakersfield at night. There would be times when my mom's not in here. There would be times when I would take a ladder and I would climb up onto our roof and I would just stare up at the sky because it's dark out there and just look at the stars. That doesn't even come close to how many people God has sealed and how many will be you went to the quarterly. You remember singing the, the doxology and the Gloria Patri with all the saints. You go, wow, this is great. That doesn't even scratch the surface of how many people will be singing glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. John sees a multitude that no, no one can count. That should cause you to rejoice. You who are questioned, how many will be saved? Who will be saved? You're saying that only a few take them to Revelation chapter 7 and say, look here. There is a number that no one can count. There is a multitude that is beyond the sands of the sea. You reject this teaching that God has, has chosen to save a particular people? Well, look how many God in his mercy throughout all of time has chosen to save. More than you could ever even imagine, friend. Praise be to God. In Revelation 5, John's weeping because he, he thinks that, that this, he hears, no one's here. This is what he hears. No one can break the seal. And he begins to weep. And then an angel, if I can imagine, kind of hits him on the back and stop crying. Look, look, John hears it's the lion, then sees that it's a lamb. This theme of hearing and seeing will be all throughout Revelation. I heard something, but then I saw. I heard something, and then I saw. Dear saints, there will be a day that what you are hearing one today, you will be able to one day see with your own eyes. I heard of this king. I heard of this lamb. I heard of this lion. But now I see him. The Lord says to the disciples, Blessed are those who believe and do not see. 
you believe and you see. Blessed are those who do not see, but they believe. But one day your faith will be turned to sight. And you will see him for who he is. You will receive, as been said over and over again, you will see the beatific vision. You will see him with your own eyes. And you will behold him forever. You and all of those who you cannot even count, to the left and to the right and behind and front, you will all behold the Lamb. We will all behold the Lamb. And we will reign with Him forever. I hope that you see why this passage matters. I hope that you see why you need to know this. Because this is what God has done in saving His people. He has promised to save and he will not fail to save. He's not shown any partiality. There is no special person. We are all one in Christ. Just because you come from a certain ancestry does not mean that you get special privilege. No, there is no distinction. If you believe and confess, you will be saved. Who, if you believe and confess, you will be saved. How many? More than you can ever count. It's just not a small number. And why? So that God alone receives the praise and the glory and the honor. So that we can look to Him and say, Praise you who save people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And can you not wait? Well, you don't have to. Don't wait to praise Him with everyone else. Praise Him now. Praise Him now. One of our dear brothers has given the report that he has uh, congestive heart failure. So does our sister Doreen. Let me help you. Uh, And so will you and I one day, should the Lord tarry. If it's not that, it'll be something else. I will not wait until it's whole to praise Him. Because my soul is well with Him. And one day my faith will be sight. And it can't come quick enough. So to God be the glory.